Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. A little frightening to think this is going to be uh, recorded. Let's talk a little bit about Corinth first. Uh, Someone did some artwork for me over here. Uh, It looks like some kind of an anatomical drawing. Uh, But actually, Corinth is on this little isthmus. It helps to say that if you have a slight lisp. This little narrowing piece of land between Greece and, this was Greece too, but it was Peloponnesia. Corinth sat just about in the middle here of this isthmus. And it, it became a very important trade city for that reason. And it was interesting, the ingenuity of the people at that time, to make a ship, to take a ship around the bottom of the Peloponnesian Peninsula was very dangerous and long, about 400 miles to make that trip around. So the Corinthians would take ships across that isthmus. If the ship was too big, they'd unload them and take them on carts from sea to shining sea, from one side to the other. Uh, I think the, the Aegean Sea to the Mediterranean. They even constructed kind of a wooden railway where they could, they could drag these ships or, or at least the cargo across to keep from having to make that dangerous trip around Peloponnesia. Uh, they got the audacious idea to uh, dig a canal across there. It's only four miles, uh, but they abandoned it very quickly. Later on in the late 1800s, that canal was actually completed. And it might be fun for you to, to Google it, just the Corinth Canal, and see what it looks like. I mean, there are these sheer rock walls, I mean, 100 feet or more, with this canal at the bottom. So they did actually end up... Uh, you know, in the late 1800s, conduct, conduct trade across that canal. It's way too narrow for ships today, but for about 30 bucks a person, you can take a tour guide across it. Uh, Corinth was a, an interesting city in a lot of ways. Um, there were uh, professional orators who came there, and for a price, they would uh, teach you great things. Uh, not really, probably. Uh, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the, the screen, uh, all of his wisdom. But it, the city had a, an arrogance about it because of that. But it was a mixed bag of people there, just due to the trade route. A lot of sailors there. You know, hi sailor, new in town, rough place in a lot of ways. Uh, and there were many, many uh, idolatrous temples there. The most prominent was the, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And that probably says enough. Uh, but there were a thousand or so temple prostitutes that uh, worked in Corinth. And Corinth was a very licentious town. Very intelligent in some ways, but there was gross sexual immorality there. And here Paul comes in his second missionary journey to create a church in the midst of all this confusion and uh, uh, immorality that existed there. 
the church was founded by him, and he's, like I said, in his second missionary journey, somewhere around A.D. 50 to 52. Uh, when he came to Corinth, he preached in the, the synagogue until the Jews opposed him to such a degree that he, it forced him to focus his preaching primarily on Gentiles. We know from Acts 18 that the congregation, both Gentiles and Jews, uh, flourished rather dramatically. Paul was very encouraged by the growth that he saw there. And he had reason to believe that church would continue to flourish in spiritual maturity after he left. He stayed there for about 18 months until he was convinced that they were on solid footing. However, a few short years after he left, the church fell into a remarkable state of serious, serious problems. They were unwilling to separate from the unbelievers and the worldliness. Uh, they enjoyed the licentiousness of the culture. So Paul sent them this letter. He'd actually sent them an earlier letter that he refers to in uh, chapter 5. But that letter has been lost. We don't know exactly what it said, but we do know that it was a rebuke of what was happening in the church at that time. But he was exhorting them to separate from immoral, sinful Christians. The problem was the troubles didn't subside. The church was being torn apart by internal divisions, spiritual one-upmanship, sexual immorality, lawsuits, criticism hurled at Paul and the, uh, his authority, his apostleship, abuse of the sacraments, disorder in worship services, uh, marriage and divorce issues, food offered to idols, and spiritual gifts. There was pride in personal spirituality and a fundamental lack of love for one another. What a mess. So with that being said, let's start. I think I will read through this whole chapter and then we'll come back and we'll attack it segment by segment as outlined in the questions. Uh, folks, before we do get started, there are 16 chapters and there are 13 weeks uh, in this quarter. I am under no compulsion to try to complete this. Uh, we will take it as it goes. There are some parts that are going to take quite a bit of time I think anyway, for discussion and trying to relate this to where we are today, and we will spend as much time as we need on those things. If we get through all 16 chapters, wonderful. If not, I think we'll learn a lot and grow to, just from the mistakes these people made, I think we will grow to love one another and love the church much more as a result of seeing the errors that were here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and priests from our God, our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that God was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the power of the cross be emptied by, of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For I consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, but many, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, no one, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <coughs> Okay, Paul starts out here referring to himself as an apostle. Let's define what that means. Someone help me. What is an apostle?
And he himself caused it. Exactly. Someone specifically called by Jesus Christ to do his work. We hear certainly, and I think, I think the Christian church generally recognizes that there are no modern-day apostles. They were all from this time, the first century church, specifically and directly called by Christ himself to preach the gospel. You do hear of people calling themselves apostles, say, we are disciples, but we cannot call ourselves correctly apostles. Does that make sense to you all? Any questions about that? Anybody want to take a stab at naming them? Well, I will because I wrote them down. <laughs> Peter, Andrew, James, John, <coughs> Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot. And we had to cross him out, don't we? Yeah, and he was replaced by Matthias. So technically there were actually 13 of them, but only 12 that actually ministered. <coughs> is Matthias Matthew? Or is that somebody Matthew. different? Different. different. Okay, thank you. Yeah, good question. So did Paul make 13? Paul made 14. Paul no, Paul, well, Paul would have made... Yeah, Paul came right after these, but yes. Yeah. And actually, we're going to read some verses if we get to it today about his calling directly by, by Jesus Christ. Some of the problems at Corinth involved these authority issues, and particularly with Paul, that where they were questioning <laughs> that. So he was definitely trying to push back against that. As a matter of fact, back in Acts... Uh, Acts 9, this is, tells about Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. <clears throat> but then after that, you know, he was, he was taken uh, to Ananias. And in 50, verse 15 of chapter 9, it says, But the Lord said to him, this is Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my, for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you, which you came, has sent me, so that you may gain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. This was the immediate time where Paul was called to be an apostle. Before addressing, we'll move on to question two here. Before addressing the problems in the Corinthian church, Paul affirms his readers. What does he want them to remember about their calling in Christ? Verses four through eight, and I will reread these. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, 
that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of things there stand out to you of Paul affirming them? All speech and knowledge, right. He sustains us to the end, just knowing that we, as believers in Christ, we're not destined for wrath, we're destined, we're destined for salvation. And yeah, yeah, good. Put our hope in that, that we're not destined for wrath. Mm-hmm. Is that a great comfort to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we all tend to stumble at times, don't we? Maybe not to the extent that the church in Corinth did. But if, if it depended on our faithfulness alone, we would be in serious trouble before we left the building here today. But it depends on Christ's faithfulness to us. And he says they're waiting, but, but as they're waiting, that they're not lacking anything. Because right. you think, like, if you're waiting, that something's missing. And he's like, no, yeah. not lacking any gift. He said, rich them in everything. You know, utterance, the ability to speak, knowledge, the testimony of Christ, and the spiritual gifts, which all these things ended up being issues of division for them. Rather than uniting them, they misused these things that Christ had given them that divided the church there. It's interesting that uh, we're having a session down in the sanctuary on the marks of a, of a healthy church, and here in the studying... We, Justin and I didn't know this. When, when, when he was asked to do that teaching and I was asked to do this teaching, we both agreed to teach on the church. We just found out last Sunday that we were teaching on opposite poles of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes a healthy church, what makes an unhealthy church? Kind of interesting how God orchestrated that, how that's doing it. Verses 10 through 13. I'm losing my voice already. Would somebody read those? Good. <clears throat> Good, thanks. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What was the source of divisions occurring among the ch- these church members? Misguided authority. <coughs> they were claiming a different authority. Apollo's here, Paul here, Peter here, so, uh, or Peter there. Um, so it seems like uh, the authority of whatever they were teaching was the source of that division. <coughs> Might say the lack of looking to Christ is what he was calling it. Yeah. Putting way too much uh, importance on that. Yeah. His concern here is to try to reestablish unity. 
in the instructions that they should be following Christ, not human leaders, even an apostle. Elevation of leaders only causes contention, disputes, and a divided church. Christ is not divided, and neither should we be divided. Do you see evidence in the of this in the church today? Yes. Where? Well, we become more enamored with our leaders, uh, maybe ministers. Uh, I remember years ago, I, I listening to Chuck Swindoll. He said, "Don't ever put me on a pedestal." So I try to remember that, that even though we love our leaders, our earthly leader, our true leader is Christ. Yeah. I think different denominations are divided amongst the, the wokeness of today's society. Mm -hmm. And so we've got, you take the Methodist denomination, for instance, they're totally in shambles at this moment. So you've got Christ Church divided because you've got different agendas by different denominations, different leaders that stand in pulpits, and so we find the church as a oneness, not in oneness anymore. Yeah, that is, I had that too. That's probably the most graphic example in our culture today is the Methodist church. But it for sure is. Think of others? Uh, pretty much every church split has some element of this. You know, people are divided on some issues or philosophies, but at some point there's a person who one of the leaders, associate pastor, a pastor that's representing that, and then it goes to take off, and people follow one person or stay with the other person. Yeah. Can you think of one? I think what many would perceive as healthy churches, uh, at least the world would, so mega churches, multi site churches, where they're not even putting a local pastor, but you know, broadcasting, you know, some other pastor somewhere else. There's a value and need. For a simple under shepherd, um, because we can't put too much importance on some really well spoken, eloquent teacher. I think just life on life, right there, actually with them. They don't have to be flashy; they just need to be faithful. Yeah. For those of you who are new here, that little laughter that came out when I asked Nate if he could think of one, we underwent a split just a few years ago uh, over issues like these. It's dis distressing, wasn't it? And that is, I have only attended three churches in my life. This is by far the most biblically and doctrinally literate church I have ever been in. It, it is actually frightening for me to stand up here and to attempt to teach to this congregation. That's why I'm not going to do it. We're going to do this inductive study. I, I know man's got to know his limitations. Uh, however, the probably the greatest vulnerability of a strong, biblically, doctrinally sound church is pride. And we have to really be on guard against that. Because that, that can creep in. It is such an insidious sin, isn't it? And we all, we all bear it. And by the time you think you have it whooped, it whoops you. It'll sneak up on you and in some covert way and reveal itself. And it's really humbling. I've had it happen just this last month to me. Got called down my family on some by my family on something. I thought I had that behind me. You know. But to see it happen in the church is big business. 
and it's something we really need to be on guard against. Verse 13. Incidentally, you may see things I'm skipping over here. Knowing that we've got 16 chapters together in 13 weeks, I'm taking kind of big, broad overviews of some of this. So if something comes up you want to discuss, don't hesitate to bring it up, and we'll, we'll work it in. Um, <clears throat> Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's the answer to personality schisms and the disunity they create? Silence doesn't scare me. <laughs> yes. We shall be like Paul in Christ. So if we're all Paul in Christ, then in the end we'll all be united. The answer is so simple and yet so complicated though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's right there. But we, we get caught in the weeds, don't we? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's something we want, we want to be eager about. Not just something that we, yeah, maybe we do, maybe we don't. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Scripture's really um, uh, encouraging, I think. It gives you, it really is a handle there to hold on to, this oneness and being intentional about it. Question six. We may get through a chapter today. How does the message of the cross destroy worldly wisdom and boasting? Somebody read 18 through 25 for me, please. I got it. Got it? Okay. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How does the message of the cross destroy <coughs> worldly wisdom and boasting? Yes. I guess I'm confused on what verse 21 means. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached the day verse he gave. Start back in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 21 is your question. Yeah, what does he mean by our folly, like our way of hearing the gospel? No, I think he just means the folly of the world, of worldly wisdom. Um, now, we will go to the real authority on all this, R.C. Sproul. <laughs> Mike, before we go to R.C. Sproul. Yeah, and this, this verse is certainly written kind of with irony. Yeah. Uh, a lot of verses are that are confronting our foolishness, aren't they? Uh, I think of the, the end of the book of Job. You know, where were you, you know, when I made the wind blow from the west? Uh, you know, these ironical kind of statements to the foolishness of man to oppose the wisdom of God. Let's see what R.C. Sproul says about verse 21, though. We want to talk about that Swindoll guy here. <laughs> <laughs> this passage is filled with intense irony. Those who are wise according to the standards of the world think the gospel is foolish. But even the most foolish thing about God is wiser than human wisdom. God can use the simplicity of the gospel to demonstrate that real foolishness belongs to those who oppose him. The arrogance of human wisdom blinds unbelievers to the truth. Jesus thanked the Father for his good pleasure in hiding these things from the wise and learned, but revealing them to little children. Does that help any? You know, I was saved as an adult. I was, I was 36 years old uh, when I got saved. I have one of those real dramatic uh, salvation experiences. But I remember before I was a Christian, Mary Ann and I started attending church. And she was a fairly new Christian. Uh, she got saved when she was younger, kind of wandered away. Then the Lord pulled her back. But we were leaving church one day, and I was arguing with her about grace. And she was trying to explain it to me, but I absolutely could not understand it. And I said, and I remember we were pulling out of the parking lot at Morningside Church. 
And I said, so what you're telling me is that someone like Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler, at least theoretically, could end up in heaven and I may end up in hell. She said, that's right. I said, it's crazy. There you are. It's foolish. What's foolishness? You know, about a month later I got saved and then I saw the wisdom in all of it. Oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed at myself for having such crazy bad ideas about God and about Jesus Christ and the power of salvation. You know, it, it was just amazing to me how rebellious I was against it. A good example of that I'll bring up is Jeffrey Dahmer. You can watch a video of him online with his father giving an interview in prison. And he talks about when he comes to the realization that he's going to answer to God. So he had believed in evolution all his life. And his father got him into creation and that ministry there about creation. He came to a realization that he was going to answer to God one of these days. And if you want to watch a video that will give you cold chills, you can watch this mass murderer who ate his victims confess that he knows Christ is his answer. And that was just a few months before he was killed in prison. Mm -hmm. And you talk about witness using that as a witness statement that the grace of God is so great. Because most people in this generation remember Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yeah. Some of the younger kids like mine, they don't remember those stories. But you can tell them, and you can tell them how evil Jeffrey Dahmer was in his state of lostness. Mm -hmm. But in his state of savedness, how great his testimony became. I don't know if I was aware. I was aware that David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Keller, had a uh, dramatic uh, prison salvation. Ended up being a quite a preacher of the gospel, actually. So, yeah. You know, the humility of it is, he could have left us where we were. And he would have been just. Yeah, and he would have been just. No, we wouldn't, it wouldn't have been injustice. We would have gotten justice. Instead, we got mercy. And God said, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy. It's God's sovereign choice in that. A lot of humility in that. Foolishness to the Greek. Foolishness to me, or to the Gentile. I was from Greece. Never been in Greece. I listened to a uh, Ask Pastor John the other day that was really good. Uh, it was talking about the verse that says... Uh, well, if Christ is not raised, we're still in our sins. There's another verse that's eluding me right now, but uh, some people use the argument like, if uh, you believe, uh, like, what do you what do you have to lose to believe? But Paul says uh, we're most to be saved, uh, and if point or something that he said, what John Piper said about this was that if Christ was not raised, then Paul's conclusion was that we're going to end up in hell, not that God wasn't real, but the reality is that we're, our sins have not been paid for. Yeah. So I thought that was really powerful about the real mercy of God, that we have our, the reality is we sinned against him and we desperately need his mercy and his grace. Right. Yeah, and the cross is the most humiliating thing because because of my sin, the Son of God had to die. 
Enough to bring you to tears, isn't it? People that say sometimes I, I just can't forgive myself. I remember R.C. Sproul saying one time, how dare you to make that statement that what Christ did wasn't good enough? Because some of us have committed some pretty awful sins in our lives that we, thank God, thank God that your cross covered that, that I am free of that. And we should live our lives in that way too. Enjoy over that sin that was forgiven, not continuing to beat ourselves up over it as if that cross wasn't enough. have a, an interesting psalm we're going to do a little later today, aren't we, Mike? Psalm 136. There's 26 verses in that uh, psalm. Two lines, couplets. And you're going to have a chance to, re, to repeat those. You're going to, it's called an antiphonal song, which means a leader says something, then the congregation responds back. Dan Gelock had to define that word for me. I'm not that smart. Uh, but the, the second line, 26 times, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So we get to repeat that. Think God wants us to remember that? Yes. that I think that is so reassuring to, to have that just hammered in verse after verse. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Yes. 
We got a little time yet. Question seven. Why is Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Let's take the stumbling block first. Twenty-three to twenty-five. Well, we'll start with twenty-two. For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ and and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Stumbling block to the Jews. Well, the Jews wanted a mighty warrior. That's who they thought the Messiah was going to be. Someone who was going to come and he was going to beat all of their people that were against them. So they saw the cause as weakness. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And we've talked about the foolishness of Gentiles. You know, we, the Gentiles, we want some empirical proof of everything. You know, make it make sense to me. Well, that's crazy. That I can't earn this? You're telling me that I'm not good enough for this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Intellectual proof, something they can figure out. Can't figure it out. Some of you here remember John Wells. His wife Carol still attends. John died a year and a half or so ago, two years maybe. Um, they were such an influence in my becoming a Christian. And they were so sweet and gentle with me. I remember one time after a Sunday school class, I was not yet saved. I literally had John Wells by the lapels. Explain it to me again. And he was so considerate and gentle in that. I would have liked to know what he and Carol talked about on the way home after that. Because I, I just could not understand it. And, you know, he went into all that, those analogies about having a debt you couldn't pay and, you know, the bank account thing and all that. And I just gave up. And I think that was maybe the very day that he did that, that I told Marianne it was crazy. But I'm sure John said, you know, I, knowing John Wells, he said, you know what, I bet the Lord has his hands on that guy, or he wouldn't be this intense about this. But then the scales fell off. Pretty cool. There was a spirit of intellectual and spiritual superiority in the Corinthian church. What had they forgotten about their past and the reason God chose them? Somebody want to read 26 to 29? Go ahead, Nate. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And the Corinthians were very erudite people. Um, not all of them, but it was a culture that 
was pretty sophisticated. And we know what the Bible says about knowledge. What does knowledge do? Puffs up, makes proud, makes arrogant. But what does love do? Builds up. But love builds up. <coughs> the Corinthians had a very strong tendency to be puffed up with pride. But the gospel doesn't leave room for it, does it? God chose no one on the basis of their looks, their bank account, their college degrees, their family heritage. It's God's sovereign choice. None of any good works that we do. Salvation does not depend on human values. God has mercy on those that he has mercy. The only thing we contribute is our sin and confession of it. Small price to pay for salvation, isn't it? If we have any role at all. Gracious gift to God. Well, I think we will leave the rest of this uh, for next week. I hear the piano playing, uh, so we'll, we will start with question nine and then move on into the next lesson. I hope you all have some time to, you know, I know you, most of you didn't have study guides before you came today that you can spend a, you know, you don't have to do bone crushing work on this, but, you know, give it the once over and, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll take it back up next Sunday.